play and stay on Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Stand up paddleboarding, hiking, great restaurants and breweries. I'll tell you more about your next vacation destination later in the show. Cairo, Seattle. Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today on the program, John Hodgman. I'm doing jazz hands. John is an author, comedian, actor, and host of the highly entertaining podcast, Judge John Hodgman. We put in a little gavel sound right there. Can't afford anything else, but we can get that. No songs, just a gavel. You may know John as the PC in Apple's Get a Mac campaign, or you may have seen him as a correspondent on The Daily Show. John Hodgman's latest book, Vacation Land, is out now in paperback. And that paperback is perfect for summer reading. It's cheap. It's bendable. You can shove it in your luggage. You can drop it in a lake. You can leave it behind on an airplane. That's what it's there to do. Go out and just destroy that book, everybody. But please buy it for sure. John is also famous for a culinary debate that he has argued many, many times at the request of many, many people, a debate that he cannot escape because America does not want to let it go. A debate entitled, Is a Hot Dog a Sandwich? So this question has basically become like your baby got back. Sir Mix-a-Lot has to play it every time he performs, and now you have to hot dog it up every day. Boy, oh boy. You know, I could think of worse lives to lead (laughs) than being asked to talk about the sandwichness or non-sandwichness of hot dogs. And if it were as huge a hit as Baby Got Back, I would be a very happy man. And as it is, I am a very happy man. Now, John's last meal is not an egg. But his passion for egg cookery inspired the direction of this episode. I chat with Rachel Kong, author of The Lucky Peach Book, all about eggs, about why and when eggs primarily became a breakfast food and why they're so ubiquitous around the globe. We'll also be using the word ubiquitous a lot in this episode because we can't afford a thesaurus. (laughs) Ooh, and then producer Aaron and I take a field trip to Beth's Cafe, Seattle's iconic 64-year-old 24-hour diner. We attempt to take down one of their famous, massive 12-egg omelets. An omelet so big that Man vs. Food's Adam Richman couldn't even finish it. I think I'm going to call it. I'm going for a clean plate. Okay, now I'm going to finish. Let's go big or go home, right? All right. I'll be sad if you finish and I don't. I'm going to finish. All right. Okay. Stick around and see how that went. But first, my interview with John Hodgman. So you have written many books, including your latest, Vacation Land, now out on paperback, and you've been on so many TV shows and you host a successful podcast. But when I'm looking around online, and maybe this is because I'm looking at you and food, it seems like your career really narrows down to a single question, which is, is a hot dog a sandwich? This seems to be the big question in your life. It really haunts me almost every day, online and in person. So I do host a podcast called The Judge John Hodgman Podcast, available at MaximumFun.org or anywhere you get your podcasts, in which I mediate disputes, real-life disputes, between actual people who call in. And one of the disputes was a write-in dispute. Two guys were having a fight over whether or not a hot dog counts as a sandwich. And this is one of those questions that really put me right on my heels. Like, I really remember very distinctly being on an airplane, thinking about what I was going to rule. And the answer was not simple. Because on, if I may say, a gut level, there is some distinction between hot dogness and sandwichness. And yet, how could I 
say that a hot dog was not a sandwich when it is, as so many people on Twitter have pointed out to me, uh, nothing but meat in a, in a bread loaf, much like a, a sub or a hero or a wedge sandwich. All of those things we would call a sandwich. So I had to come up, for me, with some uh, a falsifier, as they say in logical parlance, something that would disqualify the hot dog from sandwich at Ness. And if I couldn't, then I would call it a sandwich. And if I could, then I would make the case that I do, that it is not a sandwich, because unlike anything else you might describe as a sandwich, you would not cut a hot dog in half unless you were extremely eccentric or catering to a very picky child. What do people say when you give them your verdict? I would term the, the kind of feedback I have received on this as endless and unceasing. <laughs> And really about 50% support and and very, very angry dissent. And in fact, you know, I ended up having a public debate on this subject uh, with Dan Pashman, the host of a, of a different podcast called The Sportful in Gowanus, Brooklyn, where I live. Uh, he took the hot dog is a sandwich argument and made all of the tendentious, boring arguments that you would hear, like, oh, it used to be on menus as a hot dog sandwich, and also, what else could it be if not, uh, you know, uh, fillings between two starch-related products, and all of that is meaningless to me. I won the debate, if not with my cut-in-half argument, but as well, the fact that you could extend the definition of sandwich to include a hot dog, obviously, but if you do, you're almost including anything as a sandwich. As I brought it up with Stephen Colbert on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, would you call a taco a sandwich? Of course not. Taco comes from a completely different food culture and, and cultural culinary etymology than the hot dog. To call a taco a sandwich would be the grossest culinary cultural appropriation. And the hot dog is the same thing. It comes from a different food tradition. It comes from a Germanic food tradition as opposed to an Anglo food tradition. So this question has basically become like your baby got back. Like Sir Mix-a-Lot has to play it every time he performs and now you have to hot dog it up every day. Boy, oh boy. You know, I could think of worse lives to lead <laughs> than being asked to talk about the sandwichness or non-sandwichness of hot dogs. And if it were as huge a hit... As Baby Got Back, I would be a very happy man. And as it is, I am a very happy man. And rich with hot dogs, no doubt. Yeah, well, let's just say a major hot dog brand, having seen me have these fights on Twitter, uh, did reach out and say, we would like to send you something. And what I did not realize was that they were going to send me not something, but some things, meaning dozens and dozens and dozens of hot dogs, more hot dogs than I could ever want to eat in a year. And it was a very strange thing in my apartment building to receive this huge, I mean, it was very generous of them, but I received this huge refrigerated package. And then having basically to go door to door in my apartment building, giving out packs of hot dogs to sort of spread the wealth because there was no way I could, I don't even think I could fit them all in my freezer. Well, can I ask you, yeah. I'm sure people do this to you all the time, but I, I have my own uh, question for you that is food related, which is, is a cheesecake a cake? Because it has cake in the name, but to me, it doesn't yeah. seem very cake-like because it doesn't have a fluffy crumb. So I always have wondered if a cheesecake really is a cake, and if not, what is it? Yeah, I was going to say the controversy around the cheesecake is the lack of a, a, a crumb. Uh, and certainly it's it's not, as they would say on the great British baking, so it's not a sponge. I love that. Uh, it's more of an extremely dense, cheesy 
pudding on top of a kind of graham cracker crust. And it, a lot of people would argue that it has more in common with a pie uh, for that reason, like a, like a key lime pie, for example. But I would say that if a cake of soap is a cake, then a cheesecake can be a cake. It has a kind of dense, molded, cakey shape that speaks to the other definition of cake rather than the edible cake, than the definition of a dense loaf of something. Like a urinal cake. <laughs> For example, that's the other one I was looking for. Well done. Thank you. I always like to bring, you know, urine into talks about food. It's one of my specialties. And I'm embarrassed. I should have remembered that because, of course, I keep a mini Junior's cheesecake in my toilet at all times (laughs) for freshness. (laughs) Um, I read that you said that you could make eggs all day long if you could. You said scrambled omelets, over easy poached. I can do them all. Do you love no, eggs? I, I, I hope I did not claim that I could do poached. That is the egg preparation that escapes me still, um, though I wish to get it right at one point. But that takes a lot of practice to really get down a poached egg uh, without using a mold of any kind. Everything else I'm very, very good at. I'm not bragging to say this. I'm just being accurate. I can fry an egg like crazy. I can scramble eggs really well in a couple of different ways and and textures, shall we say, though that sounds gross now. But yeah, no, I love I love making eggs. I found, you know, there, there is a great food book called uh, Eat Me by uh, Kenny Shopson. Uh, Kenny is the notoriously uh, foul-mouthed food philosopher who runs Shopson's General Store in the Essex Street Market here in New York City, although it was previously in the West Village. And a uh, very eccentric a thinker about food and very voluble maker of food. And also one of the first sort of New York food personalities who had rules such as no more than four people to a table, no cell phones, and also don't ever write about my restaurant because I don't want people to come. (laughs) He finally broke his own rule with that by writing about the restaurant and his, and his experience raising five children in, in the store, basically. It's an amazing book. And he really talked about eggs in the way that first resonated deeply with me about the making of an egg is is a philosophical experience. You are you are taking one of the messiest, gloopiest things as pure chaos uh, and putting it to, uh, to the heat and creating something beautiful and ordered and and stately out of it. That really impressed me very much, and and since then I I, I try to find an excuse to make a scrambled egg uh, every day, if not every hour. So in the culinary world, scrambled eggs come up a lot because some people like this creamy, soft curb. Curb? Curd. Curb. Curb. (laughs) We should start start a a cheese-making podcast called Curd Your Enthusiasm. Oh, we should. Yes. Uh, So is scrambled egg your favorite? And how do you like them cooked specifically? What is your perfect scrambled egg? You know, I think the best scrambled egg I ever had in my life was the, the leftover scrambled egg that was rejected by Zazie Lambert Shopson made for her, a child, uh, by Melinda Shopson, Kenny's daughter, when I went over to their house one day. And Melinda made a scrambled egg by taking a cast iron skillet, just taking a whole stick of butter in the foil wrapping, unwrapping the end, and just putting it onto the hot pan until there was a lot of butter in there. And then just very quickly and unfussily uh, letting the butter get hot until it stopped foaming, pouring in the egg, and then immediately swirling it up I think she used a chopstick, and I've used that too since. None of this double boiler, really low temperature, trying to create these 
perfect little sort of pea-shaped curds. I find all of that to be a little bit fussy compared to the beauty of the scrambled egg, that it was uh, firm but yielding, extremely creamy, even though it had no cream or, or milk in it at all because there was just a lot of butter in there. Salt and pepper, and you're off to the races, especially if it has a nice, really yellow yolk from those really fresh eggs that you, you can get sometimes at, and more often these days at farmer's markets and stuff. There is something really special about that to me. And it was something that was offered very, you know, it's children's food. And uh, and as as the great uh, chef and Fergus Henderson wrote, uh, he's the guy in England who had the restaurant St. John that basically brought roasted bone marrow back from, from history and made it a, a staple of every menu in the world. He talks about scrambled eggs being very fortifying and steadying. And I, I find that's true in a wobbly world, having a plate of hot scrambled eggs is comforting and, and, and gives you strength. He has a point. An egg can be comforting. It can bring you strength. But in the form of a 12-egg omelet stuffed with ham, bacon, cheddar, and scallions, eggs can be the enemy of energy, as producer Aaron and I found out when we attempted to eat a dozen egg omelet at Beth's Diner. We're going to get to that after the break. And for once, we're going to make you really wait to see what John Hodgman's last meal is. That's going to come in the third act of the show, We're going to take a break right now, but when we come back, two pigs, 12 eggs, and we're the pigs. Oink, oink. How cute. If you're a fan of naturally gorgeous, off-the-beaten-path vacation spots with small-town charm, you're going to want to plan a visit to Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, where you can grab a scoop of homemade ice cream and stroll around the adorable European seaside village of Paulsbo, or walk on the ferry in Seattle and get off in downtown Bainbridge Island. And May is the perfect month to visit Bremerton or Silverdale, where you can get out of the city and into the forest in just 15 minutes for a beautiful hike. Enjoy a farm-to-table meal at Bremerton's Restaurant Lola, a Black-owned business. I really need to make the trip out there for their Creole brunch. And in the morning, stop by Saboteur Bakery for croissants that are so flaky and buttery, you'll think you're in Paris. There's also a gorgeous golf course in the middle of the forest, and there are several naval museums in Bremerton. Go to visitkitsap.com slash yourlastmeal to learn more. That's K-I-T-S-A-P, or you can find a link in the show notes. Play and stay on the Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. If you like listening to Your Last Meal, you might like watching my new TV show, The Nosh with Rachel Bell. We just wrapped up season one, so there are four tasty episodes ready for you to binge at CascadePBS.org. In episode one, I convince an East Coast skeptic that Seattle now has fantastic bagels. And in the season finale, we go truffle hunting just about an hour outside of Seattle. Episodes are a quick bite just eight and a half minutes long. So grab a snack and cozy up with the nosh available anytime, anywhere at cascadepbs.org or find a link in the show notes. Welcome to Beth's Cafe, the 64 year old greasy spoon diner along highway 99 in North Seattle. Now, as soon as you walk in the door of Beth's, you come face-to-face with an open kitchen and a big flat-top grill. And at all hours of day and night, this grill is covered with eggs in various stages of cookery, dinner plate-sized pancakes, and huge swaths of browning hash browns. 
And then when you walk into the dining areas, every last inch of wall space is covered with crayon drawings done by customers, adults and children alike. People are given sheets of white paper and a basket of crayons to occupy their time while they wait for their breakfasts. I really like the drawings that are hanging up on the wall, Bets. They're littered everywhere, and you get such a range of like artistic ability. Some people, it's just kid scrawlings, but then there are other people who are like really talented artists and totally. put up these like beautiful pictures so it's cool to see all that some are sober artists some are drunk artists because <laughs> beth transforms after the sun goes down into a drunken breakfast hut d b h is what we're gonna call it now aaron and i have both been to beth's before it is one of the few 24-hour restaurants in town but this was the first time that i'd been to beth's in the light of day and we came for one specific purpose to order Beth's famous 12-egg omelet. Hey, you guys ready? We are ready. It's our first 12-egg omelet. Nice. Yes. Which one do you want to do? We're going to do kind of like a make-your-own. So ham and bacon, green onions, and what kind of cheese do you want? Cheddar? Cheddar. Okay. And what kind of toast? You said you make bread? Yes. Yes, we make all of our own bread except for the English muffins. Sourdough. Oh, thank you. Can I have a decaf coffee too, please? Yeah, I just made some. Yeah, that's right. We're sharing the 12-egg omelet. You may say that that's cheating, but I say that it's common sense. This was a Monday morning. We had to go to work after this. Have you ever eaten 12 eggs stuffed with a bunch of non-kosher ingredients and then tried to work at your desk? So we were just trying to like keep it light, stay alive, conserve energy. Uh, I also want to point out one of my favorite things about the Beth's experience is that if you order a decaf coffee, the server puts a little plastic cat figurine next to your mug so that the staff knows that you're drinking decaf. Huh? Sorry. I mean decaf. I know. And speaking of puns, this was amazing. Aaron and I were joined by Chris Dalton, the owner of Beth's. He's been the owner for the past 16 years. And when Chris and I were emailing back and forth just trying to set up this interview, I couldn't help but insert a few egg puns into the emails. So not long after we placed our orders, he pulls out a folded piece of paper from his pocket. I actually have a list of them. So if you want to get into a... Are you you challenging me? (laughs) I doubt it. You do this journalism thing for a living. I think you probably kick my butt. But. <laughs> I don't want to brag, but I competed in a world pun championship in Austin a few years ago. But I want to do this with you. Oh, no. Okay. Well, that does sound exciting. Ooh. Okay. So existentially speaking, is this your purpose in life? Uh, <laughs> I'm already flailing. Uh, I win! Exactly. <laughs> You know what? This is not a yoke. We have to take this very seriously. Oh, God. Uh, Well, what do you expect? (laughs) I expect that Shell, if I can speak about myself, and would that be the second person, that she'll be winning this battle. I have a feeling she'll be winning winning this, too. I'm not making any excuse. (laughs) Well, I don't want you to get emboiled in any sort of uh, trouble. Um, all right, I'm floundering big time now. It's not a fish punning. It's, we're not punning about fish. No flounder allowed. Yeah, I, I know. Sorry. I think it's a draw. I think we both did an excellent job. I think you're being kind. Thank you. <laughs> Chris says Beth's goes through over a half million eggs a year. Their omelets come in two sizes. You can get the teeny tiny dainty six egg omelet or the 12 egg omelet. 
And he estimates they sell about 25 12 eggers a day. That's compared to about 150 of the six egg omelets they serve daily. All traditional breakfasts, including the omelets, does include all-you-can-eat hash browns. Most people, when it comes to the 12 egg omelet, though, they're not going to want more hash browns. We go through about a ton a week. We bring them in three times a week fresh, never frozen, and just we fill up our coolers, and by the time it's all said and done, it's about a ton every week. One of my favorite parts of our morning at best was getting to go behind the counter. I think there's something that you just feel kind of sneaky, like, ooh, I'm behind the scenes. Uh, But I got to hang out with Ben, who was the day cook, and uh, he was managing the flat top grill. Yeah, Millie, you have country coming soon? Yeah, you got that. Awesome. Ben's hands were in constant motion. He's whisking eggs. He's pouring pancake batter on the flat top. He's smearing illegal amounts of butter onto just toasted English muffins. He's folding omelets, and then he's dealing with me. I have this huge, like, foot-and-a-half-long microphone that I've shoved in his face so he can describe the perfect hash browns. Perfect hash browns should be, uh, it should taste like potato chips on top and uh, mashed potatoes on the bottom. I watched Ben construct a massive, giant 12-egg omelet. This is uh, 12 eggs right here. And then, uh, so yeah, just put it down on the grill, let it cook for just a little bit, then I'm going to spread it out, make sure that uh, it's all even throughout. So right now, this omelet, as it cooks, is like two feet across. Uh, yeah, just about. Uh, I'm going to, obviously, I'm going to fold it and uh, make it a little bit smaller. So what's going into this omelet? This is a Macon bacon omelet, so it's going to be uh, Swiss cheese, sour cream, and uh, bacon and tomatoes. Are you from the East Coast? Uh, yes, I am. I'm here. I'm uh, from North Mass. Oh, there it is. I got it now. Yeah. Uh, North Mass Italian. Chris says the most popular omelet on the menu is the triple bypass. Bacon, sausage, ham, double the Swiss cheese, and double the American cheese. You know, Betts is known for down-home, you know, earthy, you know, just good American breakfast. So uh, we don't have spinach and feta and a lot of those ingredients, but we have all your basics. Ham, sausage, you know, cheddar, Swiss. He says every now and then a customer will ask for every single ingredient in their omelet which he warns them will cost about 40 bucks and will weigh several pounds. So when Adam Richmond from Man vs. Food came in, he ordered the Southwestern Exposure. This is an omelet full of chili, sour cream, salsa, and melted cheese. Adam Richmond couldn't finish his for two reasons. One, it was a Southwestern Exposure, again, the one with all the chili and everything in it, by far the heaviest omelet. Uh, and then they were moving the cameras or something, so they, they broke for a second. He took a big drink of diet coke and immediately kind of went oh oh and he just went oh god i know better than that and he's like i'm done he goes i can't he's like and i'm not gonna get sick on national tv (laughs) guess i can't blame him for that and then our omelet arrived on a big round metal pizza pan because the plates at bets are not big enough to withstand this omelet Every omelet is served on top of a bed of hash browns with toast and freezer jam on the side. Aaron is cutting the giant omelet down the middle. Your side looks bigger. Much bigger. Well, you know, you can have that piece. We can flip this thing right around. No, thank you. Ooh, look at that one little strand of cheese. It's like a little bridge from your omelet to my omelet. The only thing keeping our friendship together. I highly recommend you go to my Instagram page and see this omelet for yourself. I have to admit, it's not the most Instagram beautiful picture. It's just a big, giant, yellow square omelet. Uh, But it's your last meal podcast. The photo doesn't do it justice. Let's talk about this omelet. Oh, my God. So I've been going to Beth's for years now, right? 
And always, I've been like, I'm going to take down this 12-egg omelet. I felt very confident. Um, No spoilers or anything, but it was a task. Yeah. Just to do half. So I don't know what kind of human monster can put down (laughs) this whole thing. Beast more stomach than man. (laughs) I liked it, though. So honestly, I wasn't looking forward to to eating the omelet because I never order them. Yeah, you're not an omelet Not person. an omelet person because I I have this image in my mind of omelets eaten when I was a child of these very big, thick, almost like foamy omelets. Mm. And this is like paper thin. So it's just like a very thin, nice, light omelet that is stuffed with all the good <laughs> stuff that you want to eat. Uh, so I really liked it. I I did not have a hard time eating it until, well, that's not true. I had a hard time eating it. <laughs> I didn't have a hard time starting it. I liked this omelet. All right, so we're off to the races, eating this 12-egg omelet. And while we do that, I'm going to give you a sheet of paper and a basket full of crayons, metaphorically, in the form of some egg knowledge. I was curious about why eggs became a breakfast food. Sure, we eat egg salad for lunch, and it's been trendy to put a fried egg on whatever you're having for dinner. But eggs are the most ubiquitous breakfast food. Seriously, try and find a breakfast menu in America that does not have eggs on it. So I called up Rachel Kong, author of the book All About Eggs. Rachel was actually my editor at Lucky Peach Magazine, where I did a couple of freelance pieces. Lucky Peach was the most creative, beautiful, wild, sort of avant-garde food magazine that has ever existed, in my opinion, and it sadly folded last year. But Rachel Kong's still alive. She's still writing. Uh, So she was available to talk about why people around the world eat eggs for breakfast. There are lots of different theories about it, but one of the main and most obvious reasons is that chickens lay eggs sort of in the morning and people harvest them in the morning. And that is why we eat eggs for breakfast, at least in the Western world, I think. Um, You know, eggs are also a very protein-rich, hearty meal. So I think for workers, they're just a great source of you know, quick burst of energy and eggs are sort of ubiquitous. People eat eggs pretty much everywhere and the people who don't eat eggs, it's for religious or dietary reasons, right? But um, eggs are so universal and chickens are universal and every culture has these different versions of how they use boiled eggs, how they use um, fried eggs. And I think that the, the fact that you can find an egg anywhere makes it a great candidate for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Here's Rachel reading an excerpt from All About Eggs to give us the history of eating breakfast in the West. The ancient Romans ate breakfast, which they called inteculum, and included eggs if available. And throughout the Middle Ages, Europeans ate two large meals in contrast to the Roman three. Physicians and religious leaders of the time suggested that it would be gluttonous to eat before dinner, and so breakfast was a meal reserved for children, the elderly, and manual laborers who needed energy first thing in the morning. It's in the 1800s that breakfast really takes off. The Industrial Revolution ushers in the need for workers, who in turn need heavy breakfasts, and the Second Industrial Revolution and the rise of the nouveau riche sees the creation of the full English, an egg-laden meal that can be dressed up three-course breakfast spreads, or down, beans, toast, and an egg. Oh my God, I wrote the word ubiquitous again. Should I just say it? Do you guys want to hear me say it again? I warned you at the beginning. Eggs are ubiquitous. Seriously, my birthday's in January. Get me a thesaurus. Eggs are found everywhere. They are the first thing that kids learn to cook a lot of the time, but they are also a wonder food. 
I can't think of another ingredient that can be used so many ways. Not only can you fry, scramble, poach, and make an omelet out of an egg, all producing very different textures and results, you can make sauces like hollandaise. You can treat eggs like a sauce in carbonara. You can take the whites and make fluffy meringue. You can bake cakes and brownies with them. You can make pasta dough with eggs. You can use them to bind things like meatballs and meatloaf. And if you fry an egg right with the perfectly runny yolk, it comes with its own little pool of sauce. I don't know if we'll get sued for saying the ad campaign they used to use, but... It really is the incredible edible egg. Trademark. Copyright. Big egg. Big big egg's coming for you. <laughs> okay, now that you're full of eggy knowledge, let's get back to our omelet challenge at Bet's Cafe. Coming to you live with an update, I would say we're like five eggs in, maybe? Yeah, I, I would I'd probably have about an egg left out of my six. I'm starting to get the meat sweats. Yeah, you do have a meat mustache right now. <laughs> a meat stash? <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. That's fine. Uh, the only problem is, once we get back to the station, I'm going to be 100% worthless. Yes. <laughs> Probably spend a couple minutes in the lavatory, not to get too behind the scenes. I could finish this, like my stomach's not full, but when I get full, I get start getting lethargic, uh-huh. and the, that's starting to happen. Like, my vision is getting weird. So, Yeah. I think I'm going to call it. I'm going for a clean plate. I'm you proud are? I'm proud of your effort. Well, now that you said, okay, now I'm going to finish. Well, let's go big or go home, right? All right. I'll be sad if you finish and I don't. I'm going to finish. All right. Okay. I mean, I only had about five bites left. That's it. But then, two bites later. Okay, it's been about a minute and a half, and I'm, I'm, I'm not doing it. Oh, you're throwing in the towel already? I'm throwing in because I just took a few more bites, and I was like... I'm not going to let my pride and competitive nature ruin my day. Otherwise, you're going to be so tired. Well, Rachel, you're a better person than me because you're pointing a mic at my face and we're here to eat this thing and dagnab it. I'm going to eat it. <laughs> you, your face, your I face mean, totally changed. I didn't want it anymore. <laughs> you were sitting there with this sour look on your face. You're like rubbing your eye. <laughs> I was thinking, like, I just get, t- I'm tired of eating an omelet. Like, if this turned into, like, a taco, then I could finish it. I need a variety. I don't want any more of the same thing. I've hit my limit. No thanks. So Aaron Mason heroically swooped in and finished the last three bites of my omelet for me. <laughs> How important is it to keep a diner like this, like a classic greasy spoon? Where does that play a part in Seattle as it gets richer and richer? Well, they're just aren't that many classic greasy spoons left anymore. And the term greasy spoon, we wear that title proudly. We get named best greasy spoon pretty much every year for as long as I've been here. Um, so, you know, I think it kind of, if you just say greasy spoon, I think people have a perception of oh, biscuits and gravy and eggs and bacon and sausage. This is about as old school as you can get. This podcast is called Your Last Meal. So you may be wondering what John Hodgman's last meal is. I owe you that. And you're going to get it after this break. We're back with the ever so thoughtful, witty and wicked smart. I learned that from Ben the Day Cook. I feel like a real mass hole right now. I don't know if I can say that, but I've been wanting to say it all week. Here's John Hodgman. So let's talk about your last meal. If you had to choose, what would your last meal be? Yeah, you know, I have to say this has been haunting me all afternoon as I've thought about it. It's a very grim proposition. Are you sentencing me 
to death. Mm-hmm, yeah, I. Yeah, well. Yeah, I am. Well, it sounds more grim than it is. The idea for me is just to make you think about what is the most important food to you, either most delicious or most sentimental. It just kind of gets wrapped up in the last meal thing, but you don't have to think of it as something morbid. No, I I appreciate that, and it's a great prompt for for a conversation. If you were talking to someone who is less morbid than I am, but as you mentioned, my book Vacation Land. Uh, True Stories from Painful Beaches is out in paperback now, and it and it chronicles uh, a, a lot of my time traveling through the state of Maine. It's called Vacation Land. That is the nickname for the state of Maine, um, which is sort of a cruel joke because Maine is a cruel place. You would, people who go for vacation don't realize that they're going to go to beaches where the water is so cold that it is made of hate and it wants to kill you. And the beaches themselves are made of rocks and knives. It is not a a place (laughs) that makes you feel like you deserve pleasure. In fact, it is a place where you, where you, you go and and contemplate the fact that nature is rugged and don't, and doesn't care whether you live or die. And is a wonderful place for a, a person from new England, like me, who has reached middle age and started to think about mortality can go and, and think about the end of all things and what foods you would want to eat. And Hold so, on, I'm booking my ticket to Maine. It sounds great. Oh, yeah, yeah. It sounds it's, nice. It's great. Oh, yeah. If, you, if you're the kind of person who, on a basic level, believes you don't deserve happiness, Maine <laughs> is a good place to go on vacation. <laughs> but there is happiness in Maine, I will say. I mean, the honest answer, of course, is I would want my last meal to be with my wife and children. Um, anything I could eat with them, is, any time I could spend with them is how I would want to spend that meal. But it would be even better, for example... If it were in Maine, specifically in the summertime, at sunset or or maybe an hour or two before twilight, eating pizza at the Tinderhearth Bakery in Brooksville, Maine. And I'm sorry, people of Brooksville, I'm going to blow this spot up. So Tinderhearth is a bakery in an old farmhouse in the middle, truly of, of nowhere on uh, the Blue Hill Peninsula in Maine, a remoter part of that peninsula called Brooksville. It is in the middle of a bunch of rolling fields and f- farmland. And this part of the peninsula was reclaimed um, in the 70s uh, by some very famous back-to-the-landers. There's a lot of really, really highly intense organic gardening going on in this area and um and a lot of old hippies who who started these farms and tinder hearth bakery is kind of a part of this movement uh as i say it sits in this old farmhouse they make the most incredible bread and by they i mean the incredibly beautiful almost luminous tattooed young people who work by the fire and get this glow of health and youth upon them because it's a wood-fired uh, bakery and uh, and all seem to be, um, I think, sleeping with each other. It, I think it's a little bit of a sex cult, but I'm not sure. In the summertime, twice a week, they make pizza. And they just serve it very unceremoniously in their backyard. And you call up in the morning and you have to you know, say, I want one or two or three. And I would never get less than three pizzas. There's a cheese, there's a meat, there's a veg. And you have to reserve it in the morning so that they can time it for when it comes out of the oven. Because they can only make so many at a time. And then you go sit at a, at a broken down, what you might call it, picnic table out in this beautiful garden and eat this pizza served to you by these elves. And you can bring along your own drink or now that I think they have wine and beer there too. So that's probably where I would want to spend. I mean, you know, it's getting to be, as we record this, it's getting to be summer now. 
uh, even though uh, I try not to eat too much bread in my life, that's what I'm looking forward to at this moment. That sounds so dreamy. And it makes me think of like the Bon Appetit or we have on the West Coast, the Sunset Magazine spreads where it's the most beautiful, shiny, tan people. And you can't tell what ethnicity they are. They all have really cool outfits. And I just don't understand who these people are. And I want to be all of their friends. Oh, you can tell what ethnicity these people are. They're all white. It's me. I mean, I don't. <laughs> they wouldn't make it into one of that, those shoots. <laughs> make no mistake. Uh, these young these young people are all tan because they don't have any melanin in them. <laughs> so it's is it your country house that's in Maine? You're there part of the time? Well, that is accurate, although it does make me seem like a true Thurston Howell the third creep. <laughs> um, but yes, we, we live in, in Brooklyn, New York, and we also own a home uh, in, in rural coastal Maine. Okay. And this has been something that we're very lucky to have. And it is something that happened because my wife grew up going to Maine and has people in Maine family and basically, you know, informed me, you know, very early on into our marriage that, that wherever we lived, we would, we would end up accepting our deaths in Maine. And so, uh, a house became available a few years ago, and uh, real estate is relatively affordable there. And so we bit the bullet and, and we bought this home. And, you know, because my wife teaches high school and I am self-employed, whatever I am, we are able to spend uh, huge chunks of the year up there. And eventually those will be all chunks of the year. I saw that you're on some list that you're one of the 10 most intriguing Mainers. And I had never heard Mainer before. And so that just made me laugh. I was wondering. Oh, I don't know where that list is, but that's that's very embarrassing. I mean, a Mainer <laughs> is a real thing. It's a, it's a native Maine person. And that is not me. I am I'm exactly the opposite of what a Mainer would consider to be a Mainer. I'm a native Massachusettsian. They hate us almost more than they hate themselves. I mean, it's a pretty flinty group of uh, insider Yankees when you get to certain areas. And the truth is a Mainer would really only be someone whose grandparents were born in Maine and though, and, and you hadn't ever left. So that's nice that I'm on that list, but, but please don't spread it around. It's likely to get me murdered in the state of Maine. Well, another headline that's even more embarrassing. This one's bad. This is the first thing that comes up. Minor celebrity John Hodgman is the main attraction. <laughs> well, I have to take responsibility for minor celebrity because that's exactly what I am. I I acknowledged that when my last book came out, and basically I, I signed it, John Hodgman, famous minor television personality, which I feel is the most accurate way to describe what it is that I do. That said, that headline is terrible because they use Maine as a pun. And even though I am a weird dad... I'm not even going to make a dad joke like that. I <laughs> know. I love puns, but I just feel like if you live in Maine, you can't make that Maine pun because it's been made so many times. Yeah, it's a it's a little on the nose. Think of all the poor horses that have to deal with the Maine puns. Good point. I hadn't even thought of it in those terms. Yeah, I'm going to do a 5K for all the Maine horses so that we could raise money for them to leave Maine. John says he always orders all three pizzas at Tinder Hearth, whatever three they're serving that day. But if he could design his own pie... For me, I like a sausage pizza. Like it's like ugh, pepperoni plus. But I think pepperoni, I guess, is probably the default best slice of pizza. And sausage feels a little unctuous and over the top to me. So that's when I start to feel a little bit self-indulgent. 
Pepperoni is the best, and it's taken me a long time to come back around because it's like you like pepperoni as a kid, and then I started getting fancy, and I started getting into food, and then you switch to prosciutto and and basil right. and all this, and just margarita, and then now I come back around, and pepperoni is so good, especially when you get the little cups that curl up and crisp around oh, the edge, and yeah. they're like tiny mm-hmm. hot tubs full of hot grease. That is the best. Yeah, you know, this is street food. You know what I mean? You can fancy it up. But ultimately, you have to honor that the, sim- the you know, it's, it's simple pleasures. And pepperoni is that simple pleasure. I'm, I'm, now, that said, I'm not going to turn my nose up at a white clam pie uh, at uh, Frank Pepe's in New Haven, which is, you know, one of the places people fight about whether that's where the pizza began. But uh, a white clam pie is a really special thing. If you can get it uh, in New Haven, Connecticut, uh, do it. It is my dream to have that pizza. It hasn't happened yet, but it will. Um, so going back really quickly to your last meal, is pizza an important food to you? Or is it just that whole setting and everything that comes along with it, being outside with your family, being in that special place, having the pizza only made, you know, sometimes and you have to get your order in early? Is that kind of more of the appeal of it? Pizza is delicious, right? Everyone loves it. Um, it is not a sandwich, by the way. That's another debate that I will not have at this time. Okay. Um, I, I love pizza, but pizza, much like, much like scrambled eggs, much like all the food we love tends to be inexorably tied up in the context in which we sort of most and best enjoyed it. And as a person in his now late forties, I can't be eating a lot of bread because I've become a big old fatso. So I can't eat a lot of pizza. So I tend to avoid it, uh, because for the most part, I consider it to be empty calories I would say, you know, when I thought about my last meal, it was always in the in the context of context. You know, I love barbecue. I love barbecue brisket, but nothing is better than going and eating at Franklin Barbecue in Austin, Texas. Uh, you know, I love steak. And for me, I will always go to Keen's Chop House in New York City. But Keen's is a very special place to me because I, I had a lot of very important uh, first meetings there. And they've got all these weird pipes on the ceiling and they treat me nice. And they, I've been there enough that the context is, now includes the fact that they know that I want that Plymouth gin martini before I even walk in the door. So it is very much, you know, the, these meals are, uh, they come in context um, and, they, and they are woven into memory. And that's why talking about food is so compelling right? Because it is a connection to family and history and culture and tradition and written big and also in the very personal history that we have. And that's why it's valuable and not pointless to talk about food. Whereas it is absolutely pointless to argue about whether a hot dog is a sandwich. Just enjoy yourselves, guys. And that was John Hodgman's last meal. His latest book, Vacation Land, is out in paperback now. Buy it from your most favorite or your least favorite bookseller. And listen to his podcast. It's called Judge John Hodgman, and I am newly addicted to it. Can I just say, I've been a big fan of John Hodgman's for a very long time, and he's one of those guys, as you can tell, everything he does, he's great in. He always works with really great people. So if you see anything that John Hodgman is involved with, check it out if you liked him on this show, and you will love what he does. Thanks to Chris Dalton and the entire staff at Beth Steiner for letting me get in the way and point my microphone at piles of hash browns and for crafting us a delicious 12-egg omelet. 
Thanks to writer and editor Rachel Kong. You can pick up a copy of All About Eggs. It's full of excellent egg knowledge and 100 eggy recipes from around the world. And she wrote a novel last year called Goodbye Vitamin, which will be out in paperback soon. This episode was produced by Aaron Mason and me. Theme music by Prom Queen. And you can see Prom Queen performing at the Can Can in Seattle this weekend all the way through October. She's in a show called Femme Fatale. She wrote all the music for it, and she'll perform in every show. You can follow us on Instagram. We're Your Last Meal Podcast for some behind-the-scenes stuff. <laughs> and if you have a spare second, please give us a review on iTunes. It's kind of like a big old game of telephone. Help spread the word. I'm Rachel Bell, and until next time, this is Your Last Meal. Thank you.